a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I wish I could tell you by the end of today's show, you're going to feel this encouraged or you're going to feel this discouraged. Honestly, some days I just don't know how it's all going to shake out. This much I do know. We are going to take a bold, unflinching look at uh, the stories and trends and ideas that are shaping the world around us. And I'm going to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about all of it. That means I I don't expect you to take my word on anything. Look, I'm not some credentialed expert. Not even that smart. I'm not good looking. I'm just a guy who has an opinion that I'm willing to share and has a really strong desire to, uh, to help get the truth out there, to try to shine a light into the darkness. Now, I have some wonderful sponsors who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. You'll see in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, hslammo.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. So before I dive into some of the different topics that I have lined up here. Um, I just want to share a really quick uh, experience talking with a friend last night. And uh, she indicated that uh, a friend of hers, you know, a neighbor, someone that she she knew pretty well, had uh, passed away very unexpectedly. And and I'm, I'm going to try to tell this in the most generic terms possible, but my point is simply this. This, uh, this friend of hers was a... Kind of, kind of a bit of a recluse, not, uh, not a social butterfly, and um, I'm, I'm trying to be generous in how I say this. Probably not the easiest person to be friends with, and so she was. Uh, my my friend was was a little bit, uh, you know, distraught in that you know she just found out this guy had passed away, and it was it was unexpected. But there was something that uh, that uh, had happened when they'd had a conversation a couple of days prior in which he, he had expressed his gratitude for her friendship. And this is the whole reason I'm sharing this. Nothing is guaranteed, right? None of us knows for sure if we have, you know, many years ahead of us or even just a few minutes. We just don't know. But I'm encouraging you to consider the people around you who may be not so easy to love or not so easy to befriend or to, to even hang out with. Do not underestimate the power of your friendship to lift and to encourage other people. Now, I, I don't want to make it sound like, well, did this guy, you know, did he kill himself? He did not. It's, it wasn't a suicide, but you just don't know. You just, you don't know when, when someone's time is up. You don't know the impact that you're having in somebody else's life. So maybe it's a good idea to keep some awareness that, we're all struggling at some level. Some people may be struggling a little bit more than others, depending on their circumstances. But don't underestimate what the simple power of a friendship, just acknowledgement and, you know, just acceptance of somebody can do to lift their spirits and to, to improve the world in some small way. All right, I'll get off the soapbox here. It just... Uh, 
it just really hit me that, uh, man, we just, we don't know. We don't know what our impact is going to be on somebody else's life. Usually we don't know until suddenly they're not there. And then it's like, oh, now, now I realize this. All right, you ready to dive in? Let's jump in here. Shining a light into the darkness. Now, that can take a lot of different forms. What I just described, actually, is one of those ways, you know, be a friend to the people around you. Be somebody that others, you know, can turn to. Here's another way, though. Standing up for yourself in the right way. Got a great article here from Alan Stevo. It's, it's actually entitled, An Embarrassing Article About Me in the News. <laughs> and yeah, somebody had written about uh, apparently a conversation that he had recorded talking with the manager of a Trader's, Trader Joe store in uh, California, who apparently this manager had singled him out and said, hey, uh, I don't appreciate the fact that you're talking about COVID and religion with my employees. So it's, it's nothing huge and confrontational. I don't want you to get the idea that, oh, man, it's this huge verbal throwdown and there was all kinds of, you know, hair flying in every direction. No. But Alan Stevo says, well, he says, uh, the article that, uh, that came about, this was, I think, published in the, was it the Gateway Pundit? He says, it's a reminder about uh, a good habit that I sometimes forget about doing and which I've become far more diligent about, and that is to pull out a video camera whenever anyone of authority comes at you with a desire to control you. And as you listen to his conversation unfold, it's, it's very clear. He's not trying to, you know, escalate. He's not trying to get some reaction out of the manager. He's just simply recording it. And, and it becomes a very interesting conversation piece at this point. But whether it's a police officer or a public official, a local activist, even a neighbor, anybody who might be trying to come at you with a desire to control you, that camera, at the very least, needs to be quietly recording the situation. And it's especially true if that behavior that they're looking to stymie is actually righteous behavior on your part. So, now, he says, you should pull the camera out, even if the officer's detaining you for jaywalking and you know you're guilty. Pull the camera out, even if you know you're guilty. Pull it out. Even if the story told by it may be unflattering to you, just pull the camera out. You don't need to point it at the officer. You don't need to let on that you've started a camera recording. Just have it recording because you'll be grateful that you did. He says, if you've ever been in that kind of situation, you know how useful such a recording is and how impossible it becomes to get an officer's body camera. Unremarkable body camera footage can be very easy to get from a government agency, but body camera footage that's useful, that can be tough. There are lots of legal loopholes that can be put in the way to prevent you from accessing body camera footage if someone doesn't want you to have it. So, he says... Have your own recording in your possession, which means get in the habit of pulling out a camera or pulling out your phone and recording. Now, as for advice for when someone comes at you, in this case, again, he had just been talking with uh, the cashier at checkout. I don't know about you. Do you ever make small talk with your cashier? This is what Alan Stevo had been doing. And this manager, you know, is like, well, it just makes people uncomfortable when you talk about COVID or you talk about religion or anything like that. And he's like, if you want to continue to, to shop in my store, you need to do this. And and Alan Stevo, to his credit, totally keeps his calm. He's not, you know, trying to be uh, belligerent about it. But he asked him, but, uh, okay, but what happens if I do talk about this with someone? In other words, he, he really, you know, tests the limits of, well, what exactly are you saying? What exactly is going to happen if I don't obey that? And it's not, you know, daring him to do something about it. It's just clarifying what exactly are the boundaries 
that you're putting down. So it's it's useful information. And I think Alan Stevo actually, he's got the bona fides. He's got the credentials of how to handle this because he has been one of the foremost people in terms of standing up for yourself and showing other people how it can be done. Now, particularly as it applies to masks. I think he has some of the best information out there. In fact, he's actually written a book on it, as well as a bunch of different articles. A couple of the articles he links to in this particular one, do this before backing down to a cop. Show me the writ, the spirit you must always have in order to be free. And he says, remember, it's not really about property rights in this case, because I know there, there are some libertarians who are like, well, now it's their store, so they get to you know dictate it. In this case, the manager was out of line. And he says, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't say this lightly, you know, before somebody attacks me about property rights, Trader Joe's doesn't have a corporate customer anti-religion policy. They don't have a corporate anti-mask conversation policy. In fact, quite the opposite. This was just one particular manager speaking up and, you know, trying to uh, put his preferences onto the customer. So, the distinction here that Alan Stevo is making is obedience to authority is not the same thing as property rights. And he says a lot of people get that wrong. And furthermore, he explores the question, well, is this a waste of time to stand up for yourself or to, to otherwise, you know, uh, be the person who's applying some friction to that big rolling wheel of, of Leviathan? He says, no, it's never a waste of time. But he says some people are going to feel like if you're standing up for yourself that somehow that's going to be harassing. And he says the future may feel very harassing to a snowflake, especially someone who's lived through 20 or 30 years of tens of millions of Americans being silent and never saying a single honest, heartfelt word in public. He says something tells me the future is not going to look like that. We're entering a period of radical public honesty, not just on the political left. So he says, this is the battle that we are called to, each of us, in our own lives. And to sit it out, he says, is to sit out some of the most important aspects of American history. By the way, I agree with him on that. So he says, I write you, asking you to be among those vocal people, speaking heartfelt truth as much as you can. The silent majority means so little, but your words matter so much. Just remember, you're going to have to find some courage, though in order to speak those words. Ah, I trust you to do the right thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Garage Door Pros is one of my sponsors on this program. I hope that you'll give Seth and his crew a call. If you need a local company in St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, or Colorado City to uh, install, service, and repair garage doors for you, doesn't matter if they're residential or commercial, they can handle it. They offer a very quick response, much faster lead than the other companies can give you, and these are American-made garage doors. I know that matters for a lot of people. Garage door proservices.com is their website or you can call 435-525-2773 look even if you don't need a garage door right now 
Keep them in mind for when you do. Maybe give them a shout and tell them, hey, thanks for sponsoring Brian's show. Well, I'm really into self-reliance, and I have been for a long time. So much so that I, I don't consider myself a prepper so much as this is just part of my lifestyle. I just prefer to try to have some backup plans in place in case something doesn't quite go according to plan. And part of getting a solid self-reliance program in place is figuring out, for instance, things like how would you cook your meals if the utilities were shut off? I got a great article here. This was published on lewrockwell.com earlier today, and it's from Zoe Sky from Natural News. Survival must-haves, 19 ways to cook without electricity. Now, I thought this was especially useful just because, you know, it's not, this is not about, well, you know, with the apocalypse coming, this is the kind of thing you really should be thinking about. You know, now, I don't know, maybe the apocalypse is coming. It, it very well could be, but hurricane season, you know, is, is underway. People could uh, could lose power for extended periods of time. Um, something that people don't think about, but uh, we haven't had a good Carrington event, which is a, a what do they call it, a CME, chromatic mass ejection from the sun, where the the sun sends, you know, this huge burst of electromagnetic energy at the Earth, and it can it can do a lot of damage. Last one happened in the early, uh, what was it, the 1860s, but the, the energy was strong enough, it burned out telegraph lines. That's pretty strong. Can you imagine what it would do to you know, modern computer chips and circuits and anything like that. So, again, I'm not trying to promote fear here. I'm just saying unexpected stuff can happen. And when that happens, you got to have something in place, especially when it comes to cooking your food. So, in this article, it talks about how making sure that you can still cook for your family, even during a long-term power outage, Includes things like learning how to use alternative cooking methods, so a rocket stove or maybe a solar cooker. And since a lot of these methods use fire and produce a lot of smoke, you also have to learn how to do it safely. So keep fire safety in mind before you start a fire, before you cook over an open flame. You, of course, want to use a safe area with any flammable, without any flammable material hanging overhead or close to your heat source and that kind of thing. But here are just a few of the suggestions of things that you can use when your stove is not working. One of them is an alcohol stove. You ever seen these? Simple. You can actually make one using a common item like a sturdy canister filled with high-proof alcohol. Now, it does need a support system set up above the canister so you can cook. And to turn off an alcohol stove, all you do is just put a cover on it, snuff it out. If you've ever had a can of Sterno, right, this is, this is what we're talking about. Next, barbecue grills. Now, there are two different types here, charcoal grills and gas grills. The charcoal grill, of course, is the metal tub containing charcoal, so you can cook food on a grill over it. If you don't have charcoal, well, you can use other biomass as fuel, wood, for instance. Charcoal grills are dirtier. They take time to warm up. Temperature regulation can take some getting used to. Meanwhile, you know, a gas stove works with the propane. It's kind of easy Heats up quickly, cleaner, easier to use. Gas grills also cool down quicker, and the temperature is easier to control. But they're also more expensive, they're not as portable, and they need a fuel tank, and you could also get into some trouble storing propane depending on your homeowner's insurance and so forth. Charcoal, on the other hand, you can store hundreds of pounds of charcoal, and it's very, very safe. 
Now, they also talk about the BioLite camp stove. That's a little thermoelectric, or it comes with a little thermoelectric generator that stores energy in an onboard battery. And that energy then powers a small fan, which keeps a constant flow of air circulating through the stove to produce a very hot fire. Huh, that's one I hadn't heard of before. Then there's an earth oven. If you're cooking something large or slowly over a period of time, yes, perhaps a suckling pig. Mm. <laughs> it consists of a hole in the ground with hot coals or stones lining the bottom. Then you place a layer of green vegetation on top of the heat source, followed by the food, then more green vegetation. And then the whole thing is covered with soil or sand. And the coals in the soil help to cook the food inside the earth oven while the steam created from the green vegetation is trapped inside the oven. You ever been to a good old-fashioned luau? Well, there you go. That's how it's done. Uh, Fire pit, that's an option. A lot of people have those in their yards anyways. Once you start a fire, you can cook food on sticks or racks or in cookware, maybe even directly on the coals if you're into Dutch oven cooking. How about a Fresnel Fresnel lens? I'm probably not saying it correctly, but we're talking about a compact lens you can use as a magnifying glass. Could be made out of plastic, could be made out of glass, but it comes in different shapes and sizes. A large lens can focus more sunlight, and that means the focal point will be hotter. I've seen people do this with big screen TVs. And by adjusting that lens just right, you can almost instantly get a piece of wood to ignite in order to start a fire. Now, the downside is you got to have direct sunlight before you can do that with a Fresno lens. How about a hobo stove? Very, very simple. You find an empty soup can, use the pointy end of a bottle opener or another sharp tool to poke some holes around the base and around the top rim of the can and then cut a door-like opening toward the bottom of the can so you can feed fuel through it. Yeah, it's... I know, it sounds like something a hobo would use. Exactly. But since aluminum cans come in different sizes, you could do a small, medium, or large hobo stove. There's hot springs. Cooking in a hot spring may seem unusual, but, you know, the hot springs can reach temperatures of 120 degrees or more. And if it gets hot enough, you can actually place the cookware on a shallow section of a hot spring in order to cook food. Now, obviously, you're going to want to be very careful. If you've heard any of the horror stories of uh, Yellowstone Park, you know, those temperatures can fluctuate from warm to scalding hot. And heaven help you if you fall in. Then there's the Kelly Kettle. It's a kind of rocket stove that's more versatile since it has a chimney that can be removed from the base. A multi-burner camp stove. It's like a miniature version of the stove in your kitchen. Usually they have at least two burners. They can be butane or propane, but they're usually quite portable and lightweight. A rocket stove. It's a very simple design, but it's highly efficient and actually burns hotter than a regular campfire so it'll heat your food quicker and produce less smoke. Single burner camp stove is also an option. And smoking. Now, technically, smoking isn't cooking, but it is a great way to preserve and prepare food for consumption. So the idea being, instead of cooking at high temperatures, you, f- you expose the food to low temperatures and smoke over a long period of time, which dries it out and gives it a protective coating that helps prevent bacterial growth. And to prepare meat for smoking, you can cut it into thin strips and hang it over a heat source. Maybe brine it if you have plenty of salt. I like the uh, solar cooker. Now, this is using modern materials to cook with the power of the sun. And there are a lot of different designs from a solar burner, like a parabolic dish that focuses the sun's energy on one little focal point, to a sun oven, which uh, you can legitimately roast a chicken or bake bread or cakes or cookies or whatever you want to right there in your oven. 
Very fascinating stuff. Solo stove, sterno cans, uh, sun dehydration or food dehydration, a tea light oven, a wood-burning stove, and there's, there's other options as well. I've got a link to this in the show notes, and I hope it's something that you'll at least take a quick look at. Maybe print it out or at least take notes of what are some of the things I could be doing to, you know, have a backup plan just in case I need to cook without electricity. You know, if nothing else, it's, you know, fun practice. I have to admit, we have a fire pit where I live. And one of our favorite things to do is basically make tinfoil dinners. Yes, hobo dinners. Hamburger patties, some vegetables. Mmm. Wrap them up, throw them in the fire. Now that's some good eating. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out to HSLAmmo.com as well as LifesavingFood.com. These are two of my wonderful sponsors and it would mean the world to me if you would find an excuse to do business with them. I've thoughtfully included links to them in my show notes, which you can find at TheBrianHydeShow.com. All right, moving on. I think one of the toughest things that I see today is staying on top of reality when there's an actual war on reality going on. And by that, I mean, look... Changing the definitions of words because, well, there's a political reality we need to maintain that uh, we're not in a recession, for instance. And so uh, we, we literally see the dictionary changing the definition of definition and recession and other things, vaccine. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting phenomenon. And it, and it really plays into that whole idea, the ministry of truth that uh, George Orwell wrote about in 1984. Where there's, uh, there's no past, there's no future, only this ever-changing now in which the party is always right. Well, if you want to hang on to reality, you've got your work cut out for you. And I came across an interview of Doug Casey talking about propaganda, changing language, and thought crimes. I thought you would enjoy his take on this uh, unique challenge to our time. International man who conducted the interview says, Recently, the Biden administration tried to change the traditional definition of a recession, which is two consecutive quarters of decline in a country's GDP. Now, the new definition of a recession is more vague and is a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and lasts more than a few months. And international man asks Doug Casey, what's your take on this? Doug Casey says, well, that's odd. It sounds like the definition of a depression, not a recession that I've used for years. Now, he says, words shape thoughts and thoughts shape beliefs. That was a major theme in Orwell's book, 1984. The government constantly changed the meaning of words, labeling some as bad think or thought crime. 1984 is the ultimate evolution, evolution rather, of cancel culture, PC wokeism and the like. He says it's critical that words be defined and used precisely. If definitions are nebulous and can be changed at will, it becomes hard to communicate. And the closer we come to redefining blue as red or war as peace or recession as prosperity, the closer we come to literally not knowing what we're talking about. Now, he says politicos don't like the word recession. 
You might recall when Alfred Kahn or Jimmy Jimmy Carter's uh, chief economic advisor joked he'd rename a recession a banana because the word wouldn't scare people so much. Well, during the last depression, Roosevelt said that all we have to fear is fear itself. But that was totally untrue. What the country really had to fear was his destructive policies. As for the definition of a recession, their previous two quarters of decline in GDP was arbitrary, but at least it allowed everyone who juggled economic numbers to use a meaningful shorthand. Though, frankly, who can even be sure of what the GDP is, even with trillions of, uh, with trillions of new dollars, uh, fiat dollars injected into the economy, and the value of the currency fluctuating wildly against everything? Yeah, good luck. Even by the government's own inaccurate figures, the currency is losing value at nearly 10% per year. Boy, that's a, that's a tough bit of reality right there. So Doug Casey saying it's hard for even an honest observer to put his fingers on what a recession is when a currency is dropping radically by an indeterminate amount. Who can trust any of the stats that the government comes up with these days? For instance, how many of the millions employed directly by the state and millions more indirectly as contractors are doing something truly productive, something that's actually needed and wanted. He says many of them are just pointlessly digging ditches during the day and filling those ditches up at night. Their costs and income are credited to GDP, but their product is economically marginal or worthless. In fact, creating regulations and shuffling paper, that's their main product, often creates negative value. Actually, digging ditches and filling them up might at least be neutral. So, he says, let's forget about a recession. We're in the early stages of a severe depression, which he says, I define that as a period of time when most people's standard of living drops substantially. Now, the next question he's asked is, well, the rollout of the COVID vaccine has led to the CDC changing its definition of a vaccine, eliminating the point about it producing immunity from a specific disease. Now, the new definition states that a vaccine is a preparation used to stimulate the body's immune response against diseases. And Doug Casey is asked, what are the implications of something like this? His answer is, well, everybody has to favor Edward Jenner's invention of a smallpox vaccine 200 years ago. That was a major medical breakthrough. Now, he says, I'm not anti-vaccine, but the fact is that children are now given 65 or 70 vaccines before they're six years old. Many of them are given in batches. And apart from the fact that many or most of these vaccines may not be efficacious or necessary, there's always risk with injections. Putting that many foreign substances in young kids' bodies that quickly, that quickly rather, is unlikely to be a good idea. And of course, it could take decades to tell what the effects may be. And controversy correctly, correctly rather, surrounds conditions like autism. And these things ought to be investigated, not automatically dismissed as hysteria. But the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of vaccines today are unnecessary, says Doug Casey. Good nutrition, cleanliness, a general high standard of living, not widespread inoculations, have eliminated most causes of disease. And this current mania to vaccinate everybody for everything he says is unnecessary and probably dangerous, perhaps very dangerous. But he says there's also a moral dimension to this too. This is the important part. The fact is, your primary possession is your body. If you can't control your own body, you don't control anything. Anything a person does with his body is their own decision. That includes taking drugs and vaccines, another word where the definition has, def has recently been changed. 
Now, from a moral point of view, anybody should have the right to take any drug, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, LSD, or a thousand others that are illegal. It's rather odd that you're totally prohibited under penalty of long-term imprisonment or death to take some drugs and at the same time forced to take others. In medicine, the Hippocratic Oath is replaced by the statist rule. Anything that's not mandatory is prohibited. It's a huge moral violation, borderline insane, actually. He says a vaccine, if it works, should be there to safeguard you and your health. And if you're afraid of catching some disease, smallpox, polio, the flu, or hundreds of others, it's your business how you want to balance the risk of taking a vaccine against the risk of the disease. So the next question he's asked. International Man says, from its founding in 1828, Webster's Dictionary has always defined inflation as an increase in the money supply. Then in 2003, it changed the definition to mean a rise in the general price level. Today, most are unaware of the traditional definition of inflation. What's going on there? Doug Casey answers, definitions of words are absolutely critical because if we don't understand precisely and exactly what words mean, we cannot communicate with each other. Changing definitions subtly and over time can only lead to a lack of understanding and confusion, which amounts to enforced stupidity. Economics, the study of how the world of human action works, has turned into a pseudo-religion and PhD economists have been turned into a priesthood. People come to believe these secular priests are needed to interpret statistics, most of which are unreliable, and to formulate policies, most of which are unrealistic at best. Garbage in, garbage out. From the night watchman who writes down whatever he wants in order to report something to the computer programmed this way or that way with the abstruse uh, academic notions. The fact of the matter is that everybody should be an economist, not just a designated priesthood that have received an arcane and largely irrelevant education focused on mathematics with little to do with how the world actually works. It's important to understand how people go about producing, consuming, and trading with each other. And one of the most misunderstood words in economics is inflation, which, as you point out, used to mean something very different than it does today. Misdefining inflation confuses cause and effect, and that's devastating to clear thinking in any area of interpreting reality. So what is inflation? Well, inflation is a verb, not a noun. In brief, it's an increase of purchasing media which lessens its value. In today's world, dominated by central banks, it's the active debasement of the value of a currency. Anyone should be able to understand much of uh, most of what they need to know about economics simply by asking questions and demanding precise answers. But that's impossible when words can mean anything or nothing. Now, from here, he's asked about the uh, green energy and the, the green crisis and so forth. And uh, actually, when we come back from the break here in a moment, I'm just going to skip ahead. I wanted to get to his thought on th- his uh, his take on thought crimes, people who don't go along with the government and media's new definition of words. What will happen to them? This is a question asked of Doug Casey by International Man. I think you're going to like to hear his answer. I think you'll appreciate his answer because he's got a lot of clarity here. And frankly, all of us are in danger of engaging in thought crime. The fact that you're listening to this program, well, you're reveling in wrong think. That, in and of itself, a thought crime. All right, well, let's make the most of it. We'll be back right after this. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would like to invite you to do so. Not that you don't have enough on your plate, but if you're looking for some good, timely, credible information from sources that I have carefully vetted, I'm not saying that everything they say is absolute gospel. I'm just saying these are voices that I've come to trust because they don't appear to carry water for one agenda or another. They really seem to be concerned about finding the truth in matters. These are my resources for wrong thinkers, and I do my best to to share a handful of those every day in the show notes. All you have to do to sign up, go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll see the big subscribe button. All it's going to ask for is your email address. I will take it from there. So back to this article about uh, Doug Casey on propaganda, changing language, and thought crimes. I mean, look, our indication that something is up you know, there's something fishy taking place here should be when people start changing the definitions of words on the fly, moving those goalposts. Well, we got to change this to make sure that, uh, you know, this is in keeping with the political reality we're trying to portray. So international man in this interview asks Doug Casey, what will happen to people who commit so-called thought crimes and don't go along with the government and media's new definition of words? Listen to Doug's answer. He says, we're reverting to acting like primitive people with taboos like South Pacific natives who dare not say certain words because it will bring down the wrath of the gods. Primitive? Well, in Europe and the U.S., you still can't discuss COVID skeptically without risk. How many people actually get sick with it? How serious is it? How many people die from it? Exactly why do they die? Exactly what are its origins? And what cures are there other than the vaccine? What are the dangers of the vaccine itself? These are things you're basically not allowed to discuss in public media or even scientific forums. If you do, and you're a medical professional, you risk losing your license, your livelihood, and being ostracized as a conspiracy theorist. And the same is true of discussing global warming. It's insane. Not long ago, the safest and most innocuous subject of conversation was the weather. Not now. Neither can you discuss the differences between races. Human races are the equivalent of breeds of dogs. Rottweilers are protective, border collies are smart, and labs are friendly. With humans, I'll generally want West Africans on my track team, Icelanders on my weightlifting team, and Jews on my chess team. But you're not allowed to say that. He says, I say to hell with these self-appointed censors. Opinions on these things have turned into religious heresies. If you say or even think something unorthodox that the priesthood doesn't affirm, bad things can happen to you. It's created a very toxic atmosphere. If you can't discuss, explore, and debate what's right and wrong and true and false, real or imaginary, the result is ignorance. And ignorance creates fear, and fear leads to violence. So the solution is totally free speech on everything and anything, including hate speech. Now, a big redeeming factor to hate speech is that only by allowing people to express themselves can you find out what's really on somebody's mind. It's nice to know what what kind of person you're dealing with, rather than having to guess because everyone's afraid to talk. If you can't broach touchy subjects, then you can't be sure of the character and the nature of the person you're dealing with. 
Hate speech is prohibited. Now there's mandatory love speech as well, but that's equally destructive. For instance, talk about the military today must always make obeisance to its selfless devotion to the country. Where a cynical observer might just say, well, the military is just a heavily armed version of the post office. There are myriad reasons soldiers join up, but how often is the military just robotically serving the government as opposed to the country? The government and the country, of course, are two very different things. Imprecise thinking combined with emotive words, it's very dangerous. Now, there's a thesaurus for words for new concepts we recently ginned up out of nothing, like ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. That and DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, are used to psychologically and verbally sanitize the melding of business and government. Leftists, progressives, and wokesters are succeeding in concretizing views that are not only inaccurate, but in some cases purposefully misleading. Doug Casey says it's dangerous and destructive, and we owe it to ourselves to challenge the misuse of words at every opportunity. I thought you might like his take on that. I think he's uh, right on the money. All right, quickly, two things I want to cover here. Um, I'm not going to touch much on this, but I am including this in the show notes. Really strongly recommend. Look at the article I'm including from Alexandra Bruce. The elephant in the room that nobody wants to acknowledge is a very noticeable uptick in unexplained deaths. In other words, not COVID deaths in this past year or so. And Alexandra Bruce has an excellent article on how a major insurance report is showing a massive increase in deaths since the introduction of the vaccine. Now, that's not the same thing as saying the vaccine caused it. But so far, we haven't heard any reasonable explanations other than, well, it must be climate change or something. But a lot of healthy people suddenly dropping dead for, you know, very, very uh, threadbare reasons or no reason at all. Okay, one final note here. When it comes to having a good grasp on world history, I think Pat Buchanan's pretty tough to beat. And given our nation's uh, somewhat belligerent foreign policy, I kind of want to get a feel for what's going on. And Buchanan is wondering, is autocracy America's mortal enemy? He says, in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, President Biden declared to the nation, we are engaged in a great battle for freedom, a battle between democracy and autocracy. On her trip to Taiwan, Speaker Nancy Pelosi echoed Biden, saying, today the world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and in the world remains ironclad. But Pat Buchanan asks, is this truly the world struggle that America is in today? Is this the great challenge and threat to the United States? Are autocracy and democracy in a climactic ideological crusade to determine the destiny of mankind? Because he says if that's the future, it is surely not America's past. Indeed, in the two-century rise of the United States to world preeminence and power, autocrats have proven invaluable allies. And I mean, he gives some really good examples here. When the fate of the revolution hung in the balance in 1778, it was the decision of an autocratic French king to enter the war on America's side that elated General George Washington and French intervention proved decisive in the 1781 Battle of Yorktown that secured our independence. And yet a decade later, King Louis XVI would be overthrown in the French Revolution and guillotined along with Queen Marie Antoinette. In World War I in 1918, the U.S. sent millions of troops into battle in France. 
They proved decisive, decisive rather, in the victory over the Kaiser's Germany. Our allies in that great war, the, the British, French, Russian, Italian, and Japanese empires, the greatest imperial and colonial powers of that day. It was in our war with Japan from 1941 to 1945. Our foremost Asian ally was the autocrat Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek of China. In our war with Hitler's Germany, America's crucial ally who did more fighting than any other to ensure victory, that was the USSR's Joseph Stalin, the greatest tyrant of his age. During the Korean War of 1950 to 1953, the leader of the South Korean regime was the dictator autocrat Syngman Rhee. During four decades of Cold War before the collapse and breakup of the Soviet Empire and the Soviet Union, autocrats were allies of the United States. That includes the Shah of Iran, General Augusto Pinochet of Chile, Anastasio Somoza of Nicaragua, General Francisco Franco of France, Anwar Sadat of Egypt, the kings and princes of Saudi Arabia. During that Cold War, India was the world's largest democracy and sided most often with communist Russia than the United States. Autocratic Pakistan was our ally. Gary Powers' U-2 flight shot down over the Soviet Union, initiated in Pakistan, as did Henry Kissinger's secret mission to China in 1971 to set up the historic Nixon-Mao meeting of 1972. Now, he goes through and through here. You know, the Seven-Year War in Yemen is another example. And he says, this recitation is not to argue that autocracy is superior to democracy, but instead to demonstrate that the internal politics of foreign lands, especially in wartime, have rarely been America's primary concern. So he says the crucial question, and rightly so, is usually this. Is this autocrat enlisted in the same cause as we and fighting alongside us? If so, the autocrat has almost always been welcomed. Now he says there's a historical question about the Biden-Pelosi description of the global struggle for the future between autocracy and democracy. When did the internal political arrangements of foreign nations, there are 194 now, become the primary concern of a country whose founding fathers wanted it to stay out of foreign quarrels and foreign wars? America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, said Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And Pat Buchanan says, and so it was. Once long ago. This is The Brian Hyde Show.